Neuroscience Frontier, a podcast of the University of Oklahoma Graduate College Neuroscience Program. For more content, follow us on Twitter at OU Neuroscience. Welcome back to Neuroscience Frontier. I'm Zachary Smith, co-director of neuroscience here at OUHSC. I'm joined with Dr. David Sherry. We have a great episode today here with Dr. Varen Desai. He is a pediatric neurosurgeon at our children's hospital. He came here after doing a fellowship in Indianapolis where he developed an interest in epilepsy and he's developing an excellent epilepsy program here on our campus. Dr. Desai is going to talk to us about a number of topics. The number one is, is what is epilepsy? He's going to talk about how to treat epilepsy, about the neuroscience of epilepsy, and then we're going to ask him a few questions about mentorship and being in Oklahoma. Well, Dr. Desai, we're excited to talk to you about a number of topics, and one of the things that we know you're interested in is epilepsy. Uh, for most of us, we, epilepsy is something that um, is really challenging, and, and we know it's a complicated disease. What in general is epilepsy? Um, how do you treat it, and what are the challenges? Yeah, that's a good question. So epilepsy is, is formally defined by the International League Against Epilepsy as two or more unprovoked seizures over 24 hours apart, or one seizure with a, with a pathology that highly predisposes you to having another seizure. Uh, but in our kind of casual day-to-day -day language, we define it as multiple seizures. Uh, increasingly, though, we're recognizing that it really has a significant impact on many other aspects of, of one's quality of life. Uh, so the Epilepsy Foundation, it's a nonprofit organization, describes epilepsy as a disease characterized by an enduring predisposition to generate epileptic seizures and by the neurobiological, cognitive, psychological, and social consequences of this condition. So epileptic patients suffer cognitive deficits, developmental delay, psychiatric conditions. Uh, if you picture, for instance, a child who's in class and is really thinking about the next seizure he's gonna have and it really weighs on them, you can just imagine they're gonna be pretty depressed and anxious about it. Uh, for adults with epilepsy, they're not allowed to drive, they have to be really careful when they're swimming uh, or even just simply going up and down stairs. So epilepsy is something that doesn't just cause seizures, it really takes a toll on, uh, on, on one's everyday quality of life. Well, what changes for neurons and on the molecular level? So simply put, in the brain, we've got excitatory and inhibitory neurons. Uh, excitatory neurons typically fire together as a network, and they're regulated by networks of inhibitory neurons. So when the balance between these two excitatory and inhibitory networks is dysregulated, then a seizure can happen. And this can be either from excessive excitatory activity or decreased inhibitory activity. On a molecular level, there are several neurotransmitters that have been implicated as causative agents behind seizures. Glutamate, GABA, and serotonin are the key ones. Glutamate receptors are key regulators of excitatory synapses, which is the location where one neuron communicates with another. In epilepsy, we see an increased amount of extracellular glutamate, 
which leads to overexcitability of neurons and a change in their microscopic architecture that makes them even more likely to seize again. Importantly, glutamate receptors are also important in learning and memory, so these architectural changes can impact one's ability to learn new things and remember them. GABA is the key regulator of inhibitory neurotransmission in our brain. When these levels are too low, the neurons can become hyperactive and epilepsy can result. Lastly, serotonin is another implicated neurotransmitter. Serotonin agonists are often used to treat depression and they also have anticonvulsant activity, which suggests a biochemical link between these two pathologies. So how do you treat epilepsy? Well, medications are first line. Basically, they work by decreasing excitatory impulses, either by blocking the sodium channels, or they increase inhibitory impulses by increasing GABA levels or keeping GABA-mediated channels open for a longer time period. Other options are ketogenic diet and surgery. Ketogenic diet is a high-fat, low-carb, low-protein diet. We force the body to use fat as the primary energy source, and during fat metabolism, ketones are produced. For the brain, which normally uses glucose for energy, with the ketogenic diet, it's now forced to also use ketones for energy, and this leads to a reduction in seizures. The mechanism by which this happens is largely unknown, but we do see a lot of people improve with this diet. You mentioned surgery. When do patients need surgery? Uh, how do you get to that point? That's a good question. So medications are, are very effective for some people. About 50% will have no more seizures after just taking one anti-epileptic medication. But if that doesn't work, you could try two or three medications, but the chances of each additional medication working dwindle rapidly. Uh, at the end of the day, about one third are medically refractory and they need further evaluation. So in, in cases of, of severe epilepsy or, or epilepsies that don't necessarily respond really well to medications, what are the further evaluations that a patient has to go to or, or go through in order to treat the disease? That's a good question. Uh, so there's three main categories of testing. So our end goal is to form an, what we call an anatomo-electroclinical hypothesis. Uh, the imaging that we can get can be anatomic, functional, or metabolic. And anatomic is MRI or CT scan. We're basically just trying to look at the structure of the brain. And functional is like EEG or what we call a MEG scan, a magnetoencephalography. Uh, these are basically looking at how neurons are functioning. When they're overactive during a seizure, they tend to be hyperexcitable and fire in synchrony. And when they do this, they give off electrical or magnetic discharges that we can visualize. The metabolic scans would be like a PET scan or a SPECT scan. And these are basically looking at changes in blood flow secondary to the seizures. So when a certain part of the brain is seizing, it's requiring more blood flow, which we can image. And in between seizures, because it's tired out, it requires less blood flow, which we can also image. Uh, a newer method of, of actually looking at all of these is to overlay all of these images on top of each other. So this way we can look at the structural, functional, and metabolic data at the same time. 
uh, and this really just maximizes our spatial and temporal resolution of uh, seizure imaging because the primary goal for us as surgeons is to really localize where the seizure is coming from. So once you've spotted where the seizure is and you've actually sort of narrowed it down, how do you go about coming up with a treatment plan, uh, particularly in, since we're talking about surgeries, a, a surgical plan for treating any specific uh, locus or, or type of seizure? Right. So. There's two main categories of, of surgeries. There's diagnostic and therapeutic. Um, if all of the imaging that we just mentioned correlates and identifies a single seizure onset zone, then we can proceed directly to surgery. But if they disagree, which happens pretty frequently, we see a structural lesion on the left side of the brain, but the functional imaging tells us there's a right-sided seizure focus, then we need to get more information. Uh, in these cases, we can do an invasive EEG, which is basically where we put electrodes into different suspicious parts of the brain. So a standard superficial EEG where the electrodes are placed on the scalp can detect signals in the gamma range about 30 to 80 hertz, whereas invasive EEG can detect signals between 80 and 250 hertz. Moreover, the spatial resolution of a scalp EEG is in the range of several centimeters, which is a gargantuan area when it comes to the brain, whereas invasive EEG can delineate the seizure onset zone in the range of a few millimeters. Dr. Sai, what are the uh, main therapeutic options for epilepsy, including surgery? So the, the, the four main surgical therapeutic options uh, can be categorized as resection, disconnection, ablation and neuromodulation. So when we look at the brain, the, there's two main structural types. There's gray matter and white matter. In gray matter, which is in our cortex, we basically have the cell body where an action potential starts. And in the white matter, we have axons surrounded by myelin that transmit these impulses. So in resection, we're simply just taking out the abnormal seizure network which basically means we're removing all the gray matter that's responsible for starting a seizure. For disconnection, we're disconnecting the seizure network by cutting the white matter so that when these abnormal neurons start to fire, they're unable to send their impulses to the rest of the brain. For ablation, we burn the seizure network with real-time guidance via MRI thermometry, which is simply an MRI that measures how hot the brain tissue is getting. So we can burn the abnormal tissue till it's permanently injured while also avoiding inadvertent heat injury to adjacent normal tissue. And for neuromodulation, we place an electrode into the abnormal seizure network and connect it to a battery. And this system then detects when abnormal firing is starting to happen and sends an inhibitory impulse to stop it. So you mentioned a number of different types of surgery. Uh, I assume some of these surgeries are actually taking out certain parts of the brain. How do you avoid not damaging the brain when you're removing the area that is creating this, this poor pathway that, that creates the problem for these patients? That's a, that's a very important fundamental question for us. So at the same time that we're trying to identify where the seizure focus is, we're also trying to identify the important parts of the brain, what we call the eloquent part of the brain that controls our ability to speak and comprehend and our ability to 
uh, move our arms and legs. Um, so we have several different options for identifying this, these parts of the brain. Uh, one could be a functional MRI, which is basically looking at different uh, blood flow patterns as the patient is tapping their finger to activate their motor area or reading from a book uh, to activate their speech area. And this we can use after the surgery to, uh, after a diagnostic surgery to help identify where the seizure focuses relative to the eloquent brain. The other test could be a WADA test where we put an angiographic catheter into one of the blood vessels and inject sodium amobarbital to basically depress one hemisphere of their brain while still asking them to do the same tasks. And then we can identify which part of the brain is important for uh, these eloquent functions. So these, these tests, uh, these modalities are great, but one uh, big drawback about them is that it requires the patient to be able to cooperate, which often doesn't happen in a young kid or an epileptic kid who has developmental delay. They're, they're either not able to uh, speak at all or they're not able to follow instructions to get this, this type of information. So a newer modality is what we call a resting state functional MRI, which basically has the patient at rest and what we see is different networks, different uh, changes in blood flow that give us a signal as to different interconnected regions of the brain. And based on that, we can identify language area, motor area, and a newer area of research is looking at how this can localize the seizure onset zone. So you did your fellowship in Indiana, and now you're here in Oklahoma. What, what, what brought you here? Well, the, uh, the ability to uh, develop an epilepsy and functional program. Uh, there's about, across the world, over 10 million kids with epilepsy, and in America, about 470,000. In the state of Oklahoma, there's about 6,400 kids with epilepsy, and all of these kids can do uh, so much better if they were cured of their epilepsy and, and had the chance to, uh, to develop normally. Uh, so the opportunity to bring all of these resources and to help build the epilepsy program here is what really drew me. So I'm assuming the team's not just you. Correct. Who, who are the other team members? Like, well, I'm sure it takes like many different fields to, to pull this together. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, what we call comprehensive epilepsy centers. There's four different levels of them. Uh, here at OU, we have really the only level four uh, comprehensive epilepsy center in the state. And what that means is we have a, an epileptologist, a pediatric epileptologist. Uh, we have epilepsy surgery. We have epilepsy-specific neuroradiologists, nuclear medicine docs, and neuropsychologists. We all get together and discuss each patient individually and tailor our plan uh, accordingly. So one of the things that's really a big deal in the development of a professional um, career is mentorship, and it requires a village to raise somebody. So can you tell us about your village? You know, I had uh, a lot of varied experiences um, in my training, and I think the ones that were really most impactful for me were 
uh, guided support, really. Um, so uh, a lot of times it's it's hard to come up with, uh, you know, with an idea for a project or for a direction when you're in training uh, because you just don't have the foundation of knowledge. But at the same time, it's hard to grow an interest in something if you're just following directions and not having your own spark. Um, so I think the, the, be the best mentors that I had were able to, to give me enough knowledge, but also give me the independence to, uh, to go in any direction that I had liked. So in your field, do you see any big changes that are gonna change how you treat epilepsy and fundamentally change basically the field itself? Yeah, there's been a general trend um, over the last several decades from doing big operations, big open operations and big resections of the brain to minimally invasive options where we make really tiny incisions and uh, tiny holes in the skull uh, and we access these lesions via frame-based stereotaxy or with robotic assistance and uh, we're, we're able to do so with, with very high accuracy and with, uh, with very good safety. Um, so we've been, we've been trending towards smaller and smaller uh, access and one of the newer frontiers um, is really high frequency ultrasound. Uh, so basically treating these same seizure networks without making any incision at all. Oklahoma is not one of the places that many people think of immediately. How do you like being here? Oklahoma's been, been great so far. I think uh, the thing that struck me the most, uh, especially coming from Indianapolis, is how alive the city is. There always seems to be some sort of event or festival. Um, a lot of people out and about, good options to eat and hang out. You're a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist, and you study epilepsy. How did you get interested in epilepsy? I think that's a great uh, question. So. Um, a lot of it uh, kind of stems from the fact that uh, pediatric epilepsy can be fixed. Um, you can kind of see the difference that you make uh, in a kid's life immediately after surgery. Uh, you know, for instance, we had a, a child who was five years old, never said a, a word in her life because she was having multiple seizures a day. And then two months after surgery, she's already saying five words. Uh, so she's already regained so much function. Um, what makes pediatric epilepsy particularly interesting is it's really a mystery. So, you know, it, and, and things are always changing. So we're, we're trying to identify the seizure onset zone, which could be in a certain single part of the brain, or it could be a series of networks that are all interconnected. And we're trying to figure out where that is and figure out the best way to treat that. Uh, but at the same time, preserve their function or give them back the ability to gain that function. With kids, because their brains are plastic, they're able to reorganize and relateralize their functional parts of their brain. So if there's a seizure onset zone in their language area, they're able to find a different functioning part of the brain to develop that function. And we can, we can bring that to life. So it was fantastic talking to you. This is an extraordinary field. Um, there's a lot going on. And uh, Dave and I really talked to you about a number of topics in epilepsy and, and being here in Oklahoma City. And uh, thanks for being here. Yes, thank you.
Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, always love the opportunity to speak about pediatric epilepsy. If you're interested in learning more about neuroscience and neurosurgery here at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center, you can find more information at the Neurosurgery and Neuroscience webpage at medicine.ouhsc.edu. Thank you.